As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nikki T, the host of Strictly Homicide, a narrative true crime podcast that covers the lesser known cases that have happened in the natural state. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all major podcast apps. Visit strictlyhomicide.com or find us on social media by searching Strictly Homicide Podcast. Until then, stay safe, especially you, Arkansas. Southern Fraud True Crime covers cases that may not be suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine you're 14 again, and a daddy's girl. There's been some turmoil in your young life, a bitter divorce when you were seven. Your hero spiraled into addiction, a lot of missed time with him. But things are getting better. Your dad went to rehab and has been spending time with you again. Real time. Sober time. Precious time. He and your stepmom have a new house. A new beginning. You go to a movie with friends and then come home and hang out with your family. It's spring break and you've got the whole week ahead with your dad. Life seems so sweet again. He kisses you goodnight at midnight. You wake in the morning to your stepmom's hysterical sobbing. There's been a double murder. But it wasn't your dad. It was his best friend and his wife. And your dad is the main suspect. He is now the subject of an intense manhunt by land, sea, and air. Finally, on the tenth day, they find him. They rule it a suicide and deem him a murderer within a day or so. Case closed. Rubber stamped. No one cares that you know he couldn't do that. That he wasn't suicidal and he wasn't a murderer. You have to live your life now not only without your beloved dad, but also live with the judgment and condemnation of your hero. Welcome to Episode 27, 
Murder in the Ozarks, Cocaine and Corruption. The Ozarks is a large, lush region of the United States, reaching into Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Kansas. It's a vast chunk of northern Arkansas and southern Missouri, from I-40 in Arkansas to the suburbs of St. Louis. A vast part of the Ozarks also covers northeastern Oklahoma to southeastern Kansas. There are two mountain ranges within the Ozarks, the Boston Mountains of Arkansas and the St. Francois Mountains of Missouri. Buffalo Lookout, the highest point in the Ozarks, is located in the Boston Mountains. With gorgeous, sweeping vistas and winding rivers, it's one of the most beautiful regions in America. The Ozarks cover nearly 47,000 square miles, or 121,729 square kilometers, making it the most extensive highland region between the Appalachians and the Rockies. Along with the Washita Mountains, the area is known as the U.S. Interior Highlands. The term Ozark has many possible origins. It's often thought to be a French abbreviation used prior to the French and Indian War, referring to a trading post at the Arkansas Post, with the French O translating to at the or à l'aise in French, which is grammatically incorrect and a contraction, but the French love their contractions and normalized grammar errors as much as Americans do. However, Ozark could also come from the French pluralized term Ozark, or at the arcs. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, French cartographers mapped the Arkansas and Mississippi rivers. The largest and highest arc in the Arkansas River was referred to as the Ozark. To clarify, the French spelling is A-U-X-A-R-C-S and it meant the top or most northern arc in the whole of the Arkansas River. Travelers would come ashore at this top bend of the river to explore, so the town of Ozark, Arkansas popped up there on the northern bank. After the Louisiana Purchase, American travelers referred to the upland areas using the term Ozark, as in Ozark Mountains and Ozark Forests. By the early 20th century, the Ozarks had become a generic term. There is a certain hillbilly stereotype given to the people of the Ozarks and Appalachian regions based around the history of spread-out rural communities in the rocky foothills, where schools and modern conveniences were historically minimal, along with a lack of education that comes from being too far from a public school system. Also, the local economy was self-sustained, almost cashless at times. That sort of hard-scratch living is alien to people who live in big cities. Their derision is based on an ignorance of the culture. And stereotypes are difficult to break, but I think there is a lot to be said of the sort of toughness of character it would have taken to live in the area back then. Fayetteville, Arkansas is on the outskirts of the Boston Mountains, deep within the Ozarks. Known as Washington until 1829, the city was renamed after Fayetteville, Tennessee, where many of the settlers had come from. At 1,400 feet, or 426 meters of elevation, it is also one of the highest major U.S. cities between the western Great Plains and the Appalachian Mountains. Fayetteville is not bordered to its south, instead opening up to gorgeous vistas along the Boston Mountains' scenic loop. Fayetteville is home to the University of Arkansas, the state's largest university. During the school year, thousands of students on campus dramatically changed the city's demographics. 
and thousands of Arkansas Razorbacks, alumni and fans travel to Fayetteville to attend football, basketball, and baseball games. The city's culture is steeped in a college town's atmosphere with a prominent arts and music scene, an emphasis on local businesses, and definitely a college-oriented entertainment district. And of course, along with the college town mindset, Fayetteville also has a very Southern passion for college athletics, similar to other cities in the Southeastern Conference, like Oxford, Mississippi, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Cities with SEC schools take their sports very seriously. It's a lifestyle for them. And Fayetteville is also pretty famous for its barbecue. With both Texas and Memphis influences, the city's barbecue joints frequently top a lot of national top 10 lists. Fayetteville was named the third best place to live in the United States in the 2016 U.S. News Best Places to Live rankings, and one of the best places to retire in the South. Forbes also ranked Fayetteville as the 24th best city for business and careers in 2016. Fayetteville in the 1980s was a boomtown, growing exponentially. The Tyson Chicken headquarters were located in Springdale, Arkansas, during the Great Depression less than 20 minutes from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and just a little over three hours from Oklahoma City. And Fayetteville wasn't just a boomtown for legitimate businesses, but of course for drugs and other crime. The proximity to both I-40, the deep Ozark National Forest, and other major towns like Tulsa and Oklahoma City made it an especially sweet spot for drug trafficking and really all manner of organized crime. This is the Fayetteville where a pharmacist and his pregnant wife were brutally shot to death on March 21st of 1984, and a man named Dennis Flowers was found dead 10 days later of a supposed suicide, effectively making him the patsy and closing the case without any real investigation. Dennis Ray Flowers was born in Healing Springs, Arkansas on January 13, 1942, to Bert and Verma Flowers. He was the only son of the Flowers' four children. He lost his mother, Verma, in 1954 when he was 12 to leukemia, and like many kids who lose a parent early, he started acting out. By the 8th grade, he had dropped out of school and was arrested for burglary in Oklahoma by the age 15. He was sentenced to 10 years at the McAllister, Oklahoma Juvenile Facility. But Dennis didn't waste his time in juvie. He learned to cut hair and got his barber license in 1965. Not long after his release, he met Betty Jo Murray from Bentonville, Arkansas. They married, and he adopted her daughter, Marla Jo, from a previous marriage and raised her as his own. For a while, Dennis owned his own barbershop in West Fork, Arkansas. But he took a job as the hospital barber at the Fayetteville VA Hospital in 1966. Dennis and Betty Jo also had two children together. Dennis's daughter, Dana Denise, was born in 1969 and was daddy's girl from the get-go. Her brother Marcus was born in 1971. During this time, Dennis really lived on the straight and narrow. Family and friends say he was a great father and husband, attended church regularly, and even taught Sunday school. And while he was working at the VA, he became very involved with the American Federation of Government Employees at his local union. He was even elected president of that union. Considering his troubled youth, Dennis had come a long way in the late 60s and early 70s. But in 1976, he attended a labor conference in Vegas, where he met a woman named Linda Denton, who was from Oklahoma City. She was also a local union leader. 
They began having an affair, and I think it's fair to say that Dennis's downward spiral started here. He filed for divorce from Betty Jo in the summer of 1976, and it was finalized that December. Dennis married Linda that very same day, a move that I'm sure didn't help the already acrimonious divorce. In 1979, Dennis quit his job at the VA after he fell down a flight of stairs and injured his back. He could no longer stand for long periods of time and went on disability, and he became addicted to pain medication. His family says that before he met Linda, he was barely even a drinker, much less an addict. But while Linda may have been an influence, Lord knows he wouldn't have been the first man to spiral downward with pain medication. Our country is still in an opioid crisis, and sure, a lot of that is recreational to begin with, but many people start out simply with an injury, just like Dennis, who suffered from chronic lower back pain after his fall. It's always a slippery slope with pain medication. But still, his family insists that not long after he married Linda, Dennis began drinking heavily, showing up at the holidays noticeably drunk. He also failed to make child support payments to Betty Jo. She was now a single mom with three kids, constantly struggling. Dennis's daughter Dana remembers these dark times vividly. She saw her mother sacrificing so much and working all the time. She saw her dad drunk and she was even exposed to some wild parties where she saw adults drinking, smoking pot, with lines of cocaine laid out on tables in the open, and couples not so subtly taking turns in the bedrooms. Dennis would later admit in rehab that he drank at least a pint of whiskey a day. And unfortunately, along with the pain pills, he started using cocaine and methadone. It wasn't long before he met a pharmacist named Lee Dixon. Lee was from Newark, Arkansas, a small town of less than a thousand people. He was the only child of James and Alice Dixon, though James wasn't his biological father. But James had raised him since he was a toddler. In 1969, he met a beautiful brunette from Batesville named Linda Bryant, the youngest daughter of Donnie and Burnell Bryant. She was a baton twirler in high school and graduated with a bachelor's degree in art in 1975 from the University of Oklahoma in Tulsa. Karen and Lee had married in 1973, and it must be said that in that era, many women quit college once they married, especially if their husband had a good job, as Lee would have as a pharmacist. But Karen was as smart and driven as she was beautiful, and she finished her degree, going on to become a teacher. She's remembered as a charming young woman, friendly to everyone, and devoted to her family. Lee finished his pharmacy doctorate in 1977. After graduation, he and Karen moved to Mena, Arkansas briefly, until Lee was offered the pharmacy manager's position at Consumers Pharmacy in Fayetteville. It was a great step up, and he and Karen were happy to move again. The Dixons were thought to be very happy and compatible. They both loved the outdoors and enjoyed everything about the nearby Ozark Mountains. Camping, rappelling, floating the Buffalo River, Karen taught in an elementary school in nearby West Fork, Arkansas and she spent most of her spare time emerged in art. She loved to paint and draw, and she cross-stitched, did macrame, and even stained glass. By the fall of 1983, Lee, like Dennis, began partying a lot, and also started hanging out with Fayetteville's powerful business figures, prominent attorneys, and unfortunately, the criminal underworld in the area. In the summer of 1980, Dennis and Linda Flowers had met a lawyer from Fayetteville named Lamar Pettis. 
They met him while working campaigns and local elections. At the time, the Flowers were passionate Democrats. They all became friends, and Dennis started working for Pettis, managing his rental properties. He would work for Lamar Pettis until his death. So both he and Lee Dixon were well-connected in Fayetteville. Lee just had an outwardly upstanding position in the community, whereas Dennis was known to the police as a drug dealer, a runner, and it was even rumored that he, quote, got girls for some of these powerful people at parties. So yeah, he was considered a small-time pimp. Lee, on the other hand, was supposedly a quiet man, an intellectual who smoked a bit of pot. Certainly not unusual for the late 70s, but perhaps unseemly for a man of Lee's position. And then 1980 would usher in a new decade of decadence, with a resurgence of cocaine. In the late 1800s, cocaine was a popular medicine, with even U.S. Surgeon General William A. Hammond insisting it wasn't addictive. By 1900, Americans could walk into any pharmacy and purchase a gram of pure cocaine for 25 cents. Cocaine may have been used as a medicine, but it wasn't regulated like one. Skeptics worried about the drug's addictiveness as it spread in popularity. Cocaine was one of the country's five best-selling pharmaceuticals that year. By 1902, some 200,000 Americans were cocaine addicts. A disproportionate number of these addicts were doctors, dentists, and pharmacists, with high-stress jobs and easy access to cocaine. As the number of addicts swelled to epidemic levels, state and local governments began to crack down on unregulated cocaine use. In 1914, Congress passed the Harrison Narcotics Act, banning the non-medical use of cocaine as well as other drugs like marijuana. And so cocaine's long career as the outlaw party drug had begun. But medicinal cocaine did become regulated and is still used today as a valuable anesthetic and vasoconstricting agent. Vasoconstriction is done to staunch hemorrhaging. Doctors also use cocaine to temporarily numb the mouth, nose, and throat for minor medical procedures. But in 1979, about 65 years after the Harrison Act, the next cycle of illicit cocaine use was kicked off, and it became the drug of choice in the 80s, particularly for the elite, as it certainly wasn't cheap. And much like his predecessors almost a century before, being a pharmacist would be Lee's undoing. Friends and family noticed the new crowd he was running with, and he began skimming the pharmacy's inventory of pharmaceutical-grade cocaine for his new friends. At this time, I'm going to pause to hear a word from our sponsors. By all appearances, in March of 1984, Lee and Karen Dixon were living the American dream. They had good jobs, they lived in a beautiful and as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Included hillside home on Sunrise Mountain, east of Fayetteville, and they had a two year old son named Mason. And Karen was expecting their second child, a daughter, the following month. But appearances are deceiving. The couple was living paycheck to paycheck. Lee was staying out all night on most nights, partying into the early morning hours. In October of 1983, Karen actually left Lee for a few days, staying with her sister in Jonesboro. She was growing tired of his shit. The heavy drinking, the drugs, and she may have also found out about an affair. Lee had hired a woman named Missy Jeffrey to work as a clerk in the pharmacy. She was a known associate of a man named Harold Jones, and there were whispers about her relationship with her boss. But she didn't just waltz into consumer pharmacy looking for a job. She was introduced. Harold Jones was a prominent businessman who owned a limousine company. But he was also the guy that could get you anything for local politicians and high rollers, be it drugs, booze, illegal gambling, women, and, yeah, limos. He also ran a pretty good racket with insurance fraud. There are numerous articles over a couple of decades where Jones reported stolen property. Nobody is that unlucky. And when I say high rollers, I mean it. I've seen two confidential CID intelligence reports where Harold Jones is named as being at private parties with Don Tyson, the Tyson chicken magnate, Sheriff Herb Marshall, and a man named Ronnie Teague. Ronnie Teague was known to law enforcement in multiple counties in and around Fayetteville. He was arrested for selling drugs and holding stolen property numerous times in the 70s and 80s, but he always seemed to get off the hook without serious jail time. He ran with Alex Montez, owner of Casa Montez, where a lot of illegal partying and business went down. One of the intelligence reports I saw was testimony from a woman who claimed she was raped by Harold Jones and another man, and then was asked to pose for nude pictures and perform in stag movies. Ronnie Teague is also named in this report. It was Ronnie Teague who introduced Lee Dixon and Dennis Flowers in the fall of 1983. Supposedly, they started off as friends because they both liked to buy and resell jewelry. As their friendship grew, Dennis started doing work for the Dixons, just odd jobs, mowing the lawn, that sort of thing. Maybe that was true, But it's also true that Dennis Flower started working as a liaison between Harold Jones's crew and Lee Dixon's pharmacy. There's really no telling how much medical-grade cocaine and pills Lee Dixon moved through Dennis Flowers. This would be during the time period of December 1983 and February of 1984. But during this period, with his new best friend and business partner, Dennis Flowers became heavily addicted to many drugs, drugs acquired at a pharmacy. Morphine, codeine, Demerol, Percodan, Valium, and, of course, the pharmaceutical-grade cocaine. 
As we know, addiction often comes with debt, money owed to bad guys. And both Dennis and Lee were said to have owed a lot of money. Linda Flowers said she heard Harold Jones say in front of her that Dennis and Lee owed $40,000 to a certain individual and that he sure wouldn't want to owe that guy a lot of money. That was on March 15th. I'm going to go ahead and introduce another player who will become important to the story later. Gary Lunsford was a well-known player in Arkansas politics, but even more so in the Fayetteville drug circles. A big man standing six foot six inches tall and nicknamed Bear, Gary Lunsford was an alleged cocaine dealer who was thought to control the flow of coke into Fayetteville. His ties to local police in this case will become more clear later. But by February of 1984, Dennis knew he was in trouble, and it wouldn't be long before the people he owed money would find him. He convinced his brother, Dr. Hugh Higginbottom, to admit him into Washington Regional Hospital in Fayetteville for back pain. He was essentially hiding out. But by February 12th, Ronnie Teague and Alex Montez came to visit and requested privacy in Dennis's hospital room. We don't really know what was said or threatened, but we do know that Dennis called Lee Dixon and told him to bring him a pistol to the hospital. Lee came quickly with a forty-four Magnum and also brought some morphine and secondol. Just a few hours later, Dennis would overdose on those drugs, which prompted an immediate transfer to the Charter Vista Rehabilitation Hospital in Fayetteville. In rehab, his visits would be heavily monitored and only family would be allowed to come see him. While at rehab, Dennis really opened up during group therapy sessions. He expressed his guilt over leaving Betty Jo for Linda and what his affair had done to his kids. He loved Marla, Dana, and Marcus very much, and it really weighed on him that he had hurt them. His children and his entire family, including Linda and his stepson Scott, came for an intervention early on in his treatment at Charter Vista. They all read prepared statements to him about how much his addictions had affected their lives, and also how scared they were to lose him. Dennis knew he had to get clean for his kids and give them the father that they really deserved. His family gave him the strength to get through the withdrawals, and he did well in rehab. He spoke a lot in therapy about how much he wanted to clean up his life and get away from the criminals and seedy friends he had been running around with. In his release order, Dr. James Merritt wrote, Patient did well in rehabilitation. He always seemed cheerful and self-motivated. He appeared to be making progress and displaying real honesty and feelings. He had very good involvement from his family in the family programs. Dennis left Charter Vista on March 14, 1984. But the problems that he had been avoiding for the 32 days in rehab were waiting for him when he got out. But now that he was clean, he was adamant that he would face the music and convince the men he owed money to that he would pay them back with interest. He just needed time. Then suddenly, on March 16th, Arkansas State Pharmacy Board investigator Jim Mulkey appeared unannounced at the consumer's pharmacy for a surprise audit. It would seem that the board was already suspicious of Lee Dixon, and they were ready to prove it. The audit report showed that about eight ounces of pharmaceutical cocaine, three vials of liquid morphine, and around a thousand pills from various painkillers to Valium were unaccounted for. Lee Dixon was now officially in deep shit. Not just with the local lowlifes, but he could lose his license and even do jail time. He was scared, 
and he called his father-in-law, Donnie Bryant, for advice. He told Mr. Bryant, quote, I'll either have to go to prison or turn state's evidence and tell them everything I know. He told his father-in-law that if he was honest with authorities, he might be able to go to rehab and keep his license. I actually believe that's pretty doubtful, and Lee probably did too. He called Dennis Flowers in a panic. Dennis, only three days out of rehab, was stuck. He was supposed to pick up his kids for Mary Jo that day and spend the weekend with them. He had been so excited to get his kids, but he was as deep in this as Lee was. He knew he had no choice but to disappoint Dana and Marcus once again, and he didn't pick them up that Friday, the 16th, as he had promised. But he called them and made another promise that he would get them by Sunday afternoon, the 18th. Dennis then went to Lee, and after calming him down and convincing him not to go straight to the police, they made a plan. They would go and steal whatever cocaine and pills were left at the pharmacy after it closed on Sunday and make it look like a break-in. Then they could take the drugs and sell them in Oklahoma City to pay back the forty grand they owed. The fake robbery was set up for late Sunday night, and Linda Flowers was supposed to rent a car and drive the package to Oklahoma City on Monday morning. She still had friends in the drug trade there, specifically a guy named Dwayne Davidson. She was supposed to deliver the drugs to Davidson, returning by Wednesday evening. But on Sunday, when she got to Hertz to rent the car, she found out she couldn't rent it without a major credit card. So she called Lee Dixon, who came and rented the car in his name. It was a white Ford Tempo. Dwayne Davidson is also who Dennis asked to fake the break-in so that Dennis and Lee would have alibis. Davidson said he would help and sent a lackey to do the dirty work. Meanwhile, Dennis had arranged to pick up Dana and Marcus at Betty Joe's after church that Sunday. They all went to a party at Dennis's dad's farm in Benton County, thrown to celebrate his rehabilitation. Dana and the rest of the family remember being so happy and proud for Dennis for not drinking that day. After the party, they all went home to their new house on Aura Street in Fayetteville, a house Dennis had recently rented from Lamar Pettis. Then Dennis and Lee went to Consumer's Pharmacy after closing that Sunday the 18th, as planned, and got all the cocaine and pills that they could. Then they returned to Dennis's house. Dana remembers seeing them together, and she said they were not drunk or high. But they did seem to be in really good spirits. Probably because so far, everything was going as planned. If they could just sell these drugs, pay off their debts, they might just come out of this thing alive. In the late hours of Sunday, March 18th, someone threw a rock through the pharmacy's plate glass window. This was the lackey that Davidson had sent to stage the robbery. But the guy just threw the rock and took off. The inside of the pharmacy wasn't even disturbed. Regardless, Lee Dixon called the police around 3 a.m. and reported that the consumer pharmacy had been broken into, specifically reporting that numerous drugs were now missing. Those drugs included over 200,000 Percodan tablets, as well as portions of morphine, Demerol, Seconol, Valium, and something called Brompton's Cocktail, which was a mixture of morphine and cocaine. These amounts are much greater than what was listed as missing in the audit. Retired Detective Mike Mitchell responded to the dispatch and recalls that it was obvious that Dixon or someone had made it look like a robbery by breaking the storefront glass, but that the hole wasn't big enough for a person to fit through. And aside from the broken glass, which was undisturbed, 
there was no sign of forced entry. Also that morning, Monday, March 19th, the Arkansas State Pharmacy Board called Lee Dixon and told him he was required to appear before the board to explain the shortages in his pharmacy. On the same day, he also got a call from Washington County CID Detective Rick O'Kelly. The detective and an Arkansas State Police narcotics investigator wanted to meet Lee on Thursday, March 22nd, about the pharmacy shortages. On Tuesday, March 20th, Lee Dixon was formally fired from Consumer Pharmacy, and they immediately changed the locks on the door. Lee already knew he was probably about to be charged by police, especially in light of his termination. So he called Fayetteville attorney John Everett and asked what he should do. It's pretty clear that the walls were closing in on Lee Dixon. He went to see John Everett that very afternoon. Everett later said that Lee was scared about the audit and about having to appear before the pharmacy board. At this time, I'm going to pause for another word from our sponsors. At around With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 4 a.m. on the morning of March 22nd, Oren Tisdale, a poultry farmer out on Haberton Road right outside of Fayetteville, close to Springdale, said that a man had broken into his home. Mr. Tisdale claimed that the man had entered his home, pointed a gun at him, and asked to use the phone. He went and woke up his wife so the man could use the phone in the bedroom. Both Mr. and Mrs. Tisdale said in their statements that the man was talking to someone named Lamar, and they overheard him saying that he was a sick man, he'd already killed two people, and he didn't want to hurt anyone else. They also said they saw a syringe sticking out of his arm. The man shouted at Oren Tisdale to turn off the lights. Then he ran out of the house, back to his car, which was a white Ford Tempo. He backed out too quickly and got stuck in a ditch. Mrs. Virginia Tisdale watched out the window as the man started walking north on Haberton Road. One of the things I find interesting about the account given by the Tisdales is that the responding officers didn't come to take their statements until later that afternoon. If they reported an armed man had broken into their home, admitted to murder in their presence, then left his car in a ditch and took off on foot, wouldn't the police have come a-running? I will circle back to this. Lamar Pettis, Dennis Flowers' employer and lawyer, said his phone rang at 4.13 a.m. on March 22nd. He recognized the caller as Dennis Flowers. In a typed but unsigned statement to police, Lamar said that Dennis told him that he had killed two people and one of them was the owner of the consumer pharmacy. In his statement, 
Pettis claims that the reason Dennis called him was to let him know that when the police found his wallet, the money that was folded over in it was the rent money he had collected for Lamar. Remember, that was how Pettis employed Dennis Flowers. The statement also reads that he wanted any other money he had to go to his children and implored Pettis to make sure he saw to it. Dennis supposedly said he had two hostages, but he didn't want to hurt them, to which Lamar pleaded with him to let them go. Dennis said he thought the best thing he could do was to just kill himself, and then he was going to, quote, truck on down the road. Pettis estimated that the call was only about five minutes long. After he got off the phone with Dennis, in the statement, Lamar Pettis said he went back to bed, but couldn't sleep because he was worried about his obligations as an officer of the court to report the call. Even though it could be considered protected under attorney-client privilege, he claimed he got up, went to his office, and after doing some research on it, decided he did need to call the authorities. Around 6.30 a.m., he called Washington County Prosecutor Kim Smith. Please note that I told you this statement is unsigned, which doesn't necessarily mean it's untrue, but in 2014, Lamar Pettis gave a conflicting story. He said he told police that Dennis had said there had been a pharmacist murdered in Fayetteville and that he would never hurt a child. He did confirm what the statement said about the money in Dennis's wallet, but in 2014, he also remembers Dennis said, quote, Don't believe what they tell you. I'm being set up. And he told my source that he did not believe that Dennis killed the Dixons. But back to the 1984 timeline. At 7 a.m., Fayetteville police were at the Dixons' house, knocking on their door. Their toddler son, about two and a half years old, answered the door. Lee and Karen Dixon were both found shot to death. Each one had one shot to the torso and one to the head. Lee was found in the kitchen, but Karen was in the living room. She had been tied to a chair and gagged, and one of her fingers was nearly shot off. She clearly knew what was happening when she died. The ME's report also stated that she lived for a few minutes after the shot to her torso. Once they found the Dixons dead, police immediately suspected Dennis Flowers, supposedly based on the report that Lamar Pettis gave to prosecutor Kim Smith. A multi-agency task force began a manhunt in the area around Haverton Road. They even established their headquarters at the Tisdale Farm. The task force was made up of the Fayetteville Police, Springdale Police, Washington and Madison County Sheriff's Officers, and the Arkansas State Police. I said at the top of the show that this search was conducted by land, sea, and air. There were patrol vehicles, officers on foot and horse, search planes, and the Springdale Canine Unit. But Dennis Flowers wasn't found. They did find the white Ford Tempo in the Tisdale's ditch, though, and the canine dogs tracked a pack of cigarettes about a 100 yards from the Tisdale farm out on the road. They lost the scent at the pack of cigarettes. At 11 a.m. on the same day the Dixons were found, there was a meeting at the home of Harold Jones. Jones, Gary Lunsford, and former Arkansas State Police Officer and current Circuit Court Investigator, Kenneth McKee. It is unclear why McKee was at the home, but regardless, he was already there when Gary Lunsford showed up and he took his statement. Remember, Harold Jones was a crew leader and organized crime in the area. He was the one providing drugs, hookers, and security to local dirty politicians, prominent businessmen, and many other big players. Gary Lunsford was allegedly a cocaine dealer, possibly the biggest one controlling the traffic in Fayetteville. 
Gary Lunsford claimed that at 3.30 a.m., Dennis Flowers pounded on his door, waving a gun around, and was covered in blood. He said Dennis demanded drugs and cash. He claims he gave Dennis $1,400 and a pistol, and then he watched Dennis drive off, though he couldn't remember what the car looked like. And then the investigation and search for Dennis Flowers was on. Detectives interviewed everyone in Dennis's family, including his ex-wife, and none of them believed he was capable of murder, much less that of a pregnant woman. And his daughter Dana specifically remembered that evening. She saw her dad and Lee Dixon together at her home around 5.30 p.m. Dana had made plans to go see the movie Footloose with her brother, and she saw Dennis and Lee leave together. After Dana got back from the movie, her dad was home, and she saw Lee come in around 11 p.m. Then sometime around midnight, Dennis kissed his daughter goodnight. It was the last time she saw him alive. But Dana's story puts Dennis and Lee together the night of around midnight. On March 29th, the search for Dennis Flowers was called off. The Madison County Record, a newspaper out of Huntsville, Arkansas, reported that police believed he was dead, though he was charged in the deaths of Lee and Karen Dixon. We have to assume that was because of what Lamar Pettis supposedly told them about Dennis saying he was going to kill himself. On April 1st, Ken Tisdell, son of Orrin and Mrs. Tisdell, found the body of Dennis Flowers in a cow pond on their land in less than three feet of water. The pond is literally across the road from the Tisdell home. You would think an exhaustive search of the area would have included this pond, but this is what investigators want us to believe, that his body lay in the pond for 10 days without being discovered and that Dennis Flowers injected himself with drugs right in front of the Tisdales, went to his car, swallowed a bunch of cocaine, and then ran across to a pond and drowned himself in less than three feet of water. It takes incredible willpower to just lie down in water and breathe it in. Most suicidal drowning deaths happen in large bodies of water. Think of the people that jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. That is more typical than, say, a man lying down in his bathtub to commit suicide. Dennis's autopsy was conducted by infamous Arkansas medical examiner, Dr. Fami Malik. I say infamous because he is the M.E. who is known for mishandling the autopsies of Don Henry and Kevin Ives in the late 1980s, otherwise known as the boys on the tracks. Their bodies had been found on railroad tracks in Alexander, Arkansas. A northbound train saw the bodies but was unable to stop in time. Dr. Malik ruled their deaths as suicide by drug intoxication, but all they had done was smoke pot. Linda Ives, Kevin's mother, would not let the investigation go. She got a grand jury to look at the case, and the bodies were exhumed. A second autopsy showed that Kevin's skull had been crushed, and Don had been stabbed in the neck before the train ran over their bodies. They were murdered. Hell, a relative searching the area found one of the boy's feet. Dr. Malik didn't even report a missing foot, and he sure as hell didn't conduct proper autopsies on those boys. That case is still unsolved, though authorities do believe it's tied to drug trafficking in the area. This wasn't the only case that Dr. Malik bungled or blatantly lied about in his reports. The Los Angeles Times ran a story about him in 1992, where they cited 20 other cases that had been grossly mishandled. It was the worst-kept secret in Arkansas that he was the type of medical examiner who would first ask the police their theory, then conduct the autopsy, before basically rubber-stamping the police report. In the case of Dennis Flowers, 
He ruled the death as suicide by drowning with cocaine toxicity. However, there is no indication in the file that the water was tested to see if it actually came from the Tisdale Pond. The toxicology analysis on Dennis showed that he had 26.66 milligrams of cocaine in his stomach. This means that a massive amount was ingested probably right before he went into the water. The police liked this explanation, that Dennis swallowed so much cocaine he became delirious, and he felt like his body was on fire and ran for the nearest body of water. It ties in neatly with the account that the Tisdales gave of Dennis ditching his car and running down the road. So if that was true, he would have been dead for ten days when he was found. The autopsy photos show very little decomposition or skin slippage as you would typically see in a drowning, especially one in which the body was in the water that long. His body was also not bloated as a body would normally be after that many days in the water. And if that's true, it's not necessarily a suicide. It may have been an accidental drowning. So why did Dr. Malik rule it a suicide? In his documented opinion, he wrote, In view of the circumstances and the investigation by the officials of Washington County, including the prosecutor Kim Smith and a sworn statement from attorney-at-law E. Lamar Pettis, Mr. Flowers reported shooting Lee and Karen Dixon on March 22, 1984. According to the same statement, Mr. Flowers declared his intention of taking his own life and gave instructions to the above-mentioned attorney about what was to be done about his affairs and his children. In view of the above, the manner of death is classified as suicide. Well, as I'm sure you know, this isn't exactly how it works. But I'm definitely not the best person to explain all of that to you. Why don't you take it from an actual coroner? The only other podcast that I've ever heard cover this case is called Coroner Talk. They have an interview with Dennis's daughter, Dana, and then two other episodes covering this case from a coroner's forensic analysis. I will have links to these episodes in my show notes. It's a three-part series, and the host even brought on another pathologist in the third episode to discuss parts of the autopsy that he specialized in. I highly recommend it if you would like to further understand why this autopsy is so suspicious. Because it is highly suspicious, and not just because Dr. Fahmy Malik conducted it, though for many people that would be reason enough. His body just does not indicate the sort of decomposition that would show if he had been dead for 10 days, in the water or not. A crime scene investigator hired by the family looked at the photos and said he wasn't in the water 10 hours, let alone 10 days. Retired Fayetteville Police Detective Mike Mitchell, who was lead detective on the case, said he didn't believe that Dennis was in the water for 10 days. He was there when Dennis's body was removed from the pond and said it didn't look like he had been dead but about a day. He also said, quote, somebody paid good money for that hit. There are so many things in this case that don't fit, though the autopsy is probably the sketchiest. One problem that really sticks out in relation to the autopsy, though, is Dennis's watch. He was found wearing a cheap gold watch, not the digital kind we are familiar with today, but the kind you had to wind. Deputy Sheriff Charlene Smith inventoried all the items found on his body, and it included an Oris wristwatch that had stopped at 2.29 on March 29th. It's impossible to say whether it was a.m. or p.m. on this type of watch, but it does line up better with the condition of Dennis's body. If the watch stopped when he died, then it was only a day or so before he was found in the pond. There is a photo of this watch in the M.E.'s report. But now the watch is missing. 
It was never returned to Dennis's family, and the police say that it's not in the evidence files. Isn't that convenient? But then there is a lot of missing evidence in this case. The white Ford Tempo, the car found in the Tisdale's ditch, which was also verified to be the car that Lee Dixon had rented, had no matching fingerprints from Dennis, though several prints were lifted from the car. Also missing? The $1,400 and gun that Gary Lunsford supposedly gave to Dennis just 30 minutes before he got to the Tisdales. So where is it? Also, though many drugs were found in the car, they do not match the list of drugs stolen from the consumer pharmacy. I won't list everything in both reports, but suffice it to say it wasn't just the amount of drugs, but the type of drugs. The pills were different except for Valium, and there were other drugs not missing from the pharmacy. Gary Lunsford supposedly saw Dennis covered in blood less than 30 minutes before he was at the Tisdales. More importantly, for all their descriptions of the man in their home, neither one of them said he was covered in blood. It's up to you whether or not you believe their descriptions. Neither one mentioned a mustache, which Dennis did have, but then again, they were an elderly couple. They also could not definitively pick Dennis out of a lineup, though Mr. Tisdale did say that Dennis's eyes were similar to the man they saw. Regardless of whether you believe Gary Lunsford's story, if Dennis had killed the Dixons, it's reasonable to believe that he would have gotten some blood on him. Both of them were shot at point-blank range. There would have been blood splatter on the shooter. And maybe one of the biggest red flags in this case is Dennis Flowers' wallet. It was not found in his pocket. Lee Dixon's wallet was in his pocket. Dennis's wallet was found sitting right out in the open on the kitchen counter in the Dixon home just feet away from where Lee was found shot to death. That is just too convenient. It's like someone thought the swapped wallets would automatically place Dennis at the scene of the crime. The only other thing to put Dennis in that house is one pristine thumbprint on a can of 7-Up. The 7-Up had been opened, but it was full. And if there is a thumbprint, where are the fingerprints from where he would have grasped the can? But more importantly, where are the other prints in the house in general? They damn sure were not on the tape used to gag Karen Dixon, though prints were found on the tape. That is one of the most single convincing pieces of evidence to me of Dennis's innocence, whose prints were on that tape. According to the police file, 23 latent prints were sent to the lab for analysis and testing against prints in the state system. There were prints found on the car, according to Detective Rick O'Kelly's report, but they didn't match Dennis and the gun Dennis owned was in the floorboard along with a syringe. Neither had prints on them. And not just that they didn't have Dennis's prints, they didn't have any prints. Someone wiped them clean. And there's even a handwritten note on the report that Rick O'Kelly turned in, requesting that the prints be tested against Ronnie Teague and another known criminal. But there is no follow-up in the record. There is no record that Teague was ever even questioned. But someone thought he should have been. At this time, I'm going to pause for a final word from our sponsors. I read where one of the original investigators... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recently speculated that Lee Dixon possibly came home and found his wife and Dennis Flowers having sex and doing cocaine and quote, one thing led to another. Excuse me? First of all, there is absolutely zero evidence indicating that Dennis Flowers and Karen Dixon were anything but just friends. In fact, he was more Lee's friend than Karen's. Karen was resentful of Lee's partying and staying out all night, and I think it could be fair to assume she resented Dennis Flowers for partying with her husband. Despite that, this law enforcement officer actually put in writing that this eight-month pregnant school teacher was possibly doing coke and sleeping with her husband's best friend? It isn't just a ludicrous theory. It is offensive victim-blaming. I would say this officer's name, but I promise to keep this account confidential. Though the retired police officer did put this in writing. I will tell you that I have mentioned his name in this episode. He was an investigating officer. I won't say it now, but if he cares to whine about my observation of his comments, I have the receipts, sir. Another thing that this anonymous detective told my source that really sticks out is that the reason Dennis Flowers was the number one suspect is because a prominent citizen pointed the finger at him, not because of Lamar Pettis' statement. This quote, prominent citizen, claimed that Dennis Flowers came to his home just hours before the murders of Karen and Lee Dixon, put a gun in his face, and demanded all of the cocaine in his house. The prominent citizen gave him the cocaine, and when he heard about the murders, he called Kenneth McKee, the circuit court investigator, and told his story on the promise that his name would be kept out of it. If you recall, Kenneth McKee was the investigator present for Gary Lunsford's story to police. That's something that is just too coincidental. So supposedly, it was this prominent citizen's tip that instigated the massive manhunt for Dennis Flowers. And I can tell you, the only prominent citizen that I've seen named in official reports that is not a part of law enforcement is none other than Don Tyson himself. I was told I probably shouldn't mention Don Tyson's name too much, but after just one Google search, you can find all the dirt you want on the chicken magnate that paints a much worse picture than anything I've said here. Suffice it to say, he wasn't just into chicken. He had his fingers in many pies, including local politics. And I saw with my own eyes his name on those police informants' reports. He was connected to Ronnie Teague, Alex Montez, Sheriff Herb Marshall, and the list goes on and on, up to and including Dr. Fahmy Malik and then-Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. It's worth noting that Dr. Malik was Surgeon General of Arkansas under Clinton's administration but he resigned right before Clinton ran for president. Now please don't come at me for talking politics because that's not what I'm doing. I'm not here to investigate President Clinton or any other politician. I'm here to talk about a crime in the Ozarks of Arkansas that was obviously covered up. Someone did not want Lee Dixon talking to the pharmacy board or the police, and that someone needed a patsy. There is just too much police collusion in this case to ignore their part in the cover-up. Who told Dr. Malik to say it was a suicide? Who lost Dennis's watch? Who ignored all other suspects based on one man's suggestion? That would be the Fayetteville Police and the Washington County Sheriff's Department. You could further extend the blame into the Arkansas State Police, but I'm not sure it even went that far. This smells like a local cover-up by local good old boys. 
One thing that has always bugged me out of the several things that are wrong with this case is why did Dennis eat the cocaine? Typically, people don't eat cocaine for fun. Snort it, smoke it, shoot it, sure, but eat it? And Dennis was seen supposedly with a syringe in his arm. And when his body was found, there was a spoon in his pocket. So he definitely knew how to cook cocaine and shoot it. There are also needle marks in his arms when he was found. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's not typical. You know a situation where someone would swallow that much cocaine, though? When they're pulled over by a cop? It's better to try and hide it and puke it up later. Or if you're arrested anyway, you would probably overdose and then be taken to the hospital. Either way, you wouldn't sit in jail for possession. Obviously, I have no proof of this. It's just a possibility I've considered because swallowing cocaine is a very unusual way to get high off of that drug. It's also a possibility that someone put a gun to Dennis's head and made him swallow it, hoping for an overdose. Good patsies are dead patsies. In fact, considering the company Dennis was keeping, the dangerous men he owed money, the powerful men he could be compelled to testify against, I am more inclined to believe the second scenario. I'm now going to give you my theory of the crime, well, at least the parts I find most plausible and the parts I find to be a possibility. Someone came to Lee and Karen Dixon's home that night, well before midnight, before Dennis could have even been there, when Dennis and Lee were still at Dennis's house. Dana saw her dad and Dennis, remember? They needed something from Lee Dixon. Maybe they wanted the money. Maybe more drugs. More than likely, they just needed him dead. The best way to control Lee would have been to tie up Karen. At eight months pregnant, she was hardly a threat, but she could be used against her husband. And so they wait. Lee had frantically found Dennis that weekend to get his help. I think he went to him again, and Dennis came back to the house with him. They were still trying to cover their asses and sell the drugs to get the money. Remember, Dennis did have the rental car that Linda Flowers was supposed to use to move the stolen drugs to Oklahoma City. The rental car in Lee Dixon's name. So then Lee and Dennis arrive at the Dixon home. They encounter the man, or more likely men, that were holding Karen and Mason hostage. The fact that little Mason wasn't tied up isn't too surprising. They had probably left him sleeping but Karen was found clutching his little coat. Maybe they threatened to kidnap him to control her, and desperately she grabbed his coat, as he was later found only in a diaper. I can see a mother saying, please, please, just take his coat. It was a chilly March night. She was also extensively tied up and blindfolded by tape. She was bound to the chair with an electrical cord and then white tape, similar to masking tape, was used to cover her eyes and tie up her hands, forearms, and legs. You have to know that not being able to see would only increase her terror. It's possible whoever was waiting for Lee Dixon had decided to try and get what they wanted out of his wife first. But maybe those lying in wait for Lee no longer wanted the money. Like I said, maybe they were just waiting to kill him. Maybe Karen wasn't blindfolded to terrorize her, but in hopes that she couldn't identify the intruders. She could have woken up to find people in her house, and then they tied her up, but didn't really intend to kill her. I actually believe the second theory is more plausible. The men waiting for her husband 
fully intended to kill him, to stop him from testifying before the pharmacy board, and to stop him from being interviewed by police and turning state's evidence. But I think it stands to reason, since Dana saw the men together around 11 p.m., that Dennis went with Lee back to his house. When they got there, they found Karen tied up and the killers waiting for them. These men then shot and killed Lee Dixon point-blank in his kitchen. They probably forced Dennis to swap the wallets at this time. The kitchen is where Lee's body was found, and that is where Dennis's wallet was found, lying out in the open, conspicuously on the counter, along with that can of 7-Up with a perfect thumbprint from Dennis. Quite literally, the only print of his found anywhere. Think about it. You've got a gun to your head. You just watched these guys kill your friend and his pregnant wife. You would gladly give them your wallet and put your thumb on a can if asked. Just don't shoot me. And again, there were no other matching fingerprints anywhere that there should have been if Dennis had tied Karen up or if he had pulled the trigger. Someone shot a woman who was eight months pregnant not once but twice, as she begged for her life and probably for her son's life. This is where it's really difficult to believe that Dennis was involved. He had no motive to shoot Karen. He knew her. He knew their little boy. God knows he was a drug dealer and even a pimp, but no one had ever accused him of violence before. And I believe the men who did kill the Dixons then kidnapped Dennis Flowers. They got him in the Ford Tempo, shot him up with coke, and then sent him to the Tisdale's door and left in a second car. They did this to set him up. They needed him to say the right things. And according to the Tisdales, he did say he killed two people. I would be dishonest if I didn't admit that there is at least the possibility that Dennis did kill Lee and Karen, and that he was in the Tisdale home, manic and calling his lawyer. There was no motive for him to kill Karen, but he did have a reason to want Lee to shut up. As I've said, he was in this just as deep. But if he didn't kill Lee and Karen, the men who did could have forced him into the Tisdale's home and threatened him if he didn't say the right things. Don't forget, he would have watched these monsters kill a pregnant woman in cold blood. Who's to say they didn't threaten to kill Dennis's children if he didn't follow their instructions at the Tisdale's? Most people believe the Tisdale's. If they were connected somehow, it's not something that was even whispered about. Even their shaky identification was believed to have more to do with their advanced age but it's also fair to say that their story is convenient to the police theory. However, if there's one thing I do believe in, it's the power of canines. These dogs tracked Dennis's scent from the rental car at the Tisdale house to the pack of cigarettes in the road, and there, the trail stopped. It's logical that someone picked Dennis up right there in the road, and that's why the dogs lost his scent. I also think it's plausible to speculate that it was Lamar Pettis who picked up Dennis in the road. It would certainly explain the more than two-hour gap before he called the prosecutor to report Dennis's confession. And it has been rumored that Lamar Pettis took Dennis Flowers to his cabin to hide out. And that is another plausible theory when considering how little Dennis's body had decomposed. Especially when you factor in the day the watch stopped, which was the day before his body was found. He had been somewhere for at least eight or nine days before he was put in that pond. I think it's important to note here that Lamar Pettis's story changed over the years. Much can be made of a typed-up report that isn't signed, but the fact is, it does read like a recorded conversation that someone transcribed. 
I do believe those were his words. But speaking with a private investigator in 2014, 30 years later, Lamar Pettis did not say Dennis confessed. He said Dennis told him he was being set up, and he did not believe that Dennis was a murderer. I don't believe Lamar Pettis had any malicious intent towards the Dixons or anyone else involved. But I do believe he would have gone and picked up his client and taken him somewhere else. And then he realized how much trouble he could get into for harboring a fugitive and called Prosecutor Kim Smith. It makes much more sense to me that Dennis was forced into the Tisdale home, forced to call Lamar and confess, and then Lamar came and got him. And again, as devil's advocate, it is possible that Dennis Flowers killed the Dixons. I don't think he did, but a lot of people do. At the request of Dennis's family in 2015, the police ran all available prints on file through the state database, and they still didn't find any new leads. Obviously, family members do not want to believe that of their loved ones. It hurts me to say it knowing Dana could hear this. But for what it's worth, Karen Dixon's brother, Tommy Bryant, also believes that Dennis Flowers is innocent. In November of 2016, Tommy Bryant told KARK, a local news station, that he didn't believe Dennis murdered his sister and her husband. He admitted that his brother-in-law was mixed up with some bad people, but he pointed out how shaken up the town was by the brutal murders. He said, quote, They had a public that was scared. Something like that hadn't happened in Fayetteville, Arkansas before. I think they were under pressure, political pressure, to close that case. Lamar Pettis also talked to the same reporter and said he believed that Dennis was at the scene of the crime, but was used as a scapegoat. As for me, I keep thinking back to that original investigator, the one I said I would keep confidential. To say he was obtuse towards this investigation and to new inquiries would be putting it mildly. I've already told you about his disgusting speculation about Karen Dixon. You can feel his disdain towards Dennis Flowers, his family, and this entire case. I'll leave you with one sentence he wrote that sums it up. He said this regarding new inquiries about the case to another retired cop. Quote, Who would have thought a 30-year-old murder case of someone with Flowers' reputation could pop up? If you or I were murdered in 84, no one would care now. Okay, Mr. Retired Police Officer, First of all, everyone takes the death of cops seriously. It's a dangerous job that requires selfless bravery, and we grieve tremendously when those that vow to protect us are killed in the line of duty. But even if you personally do not believe that Dennis Flowers' death was worthy of an investigation because you thought he was a bad person, what about Karen and Lee Dixon? You have already proven your insensitivity by outlandishly speculating that pregnant Karen Dixon was doing cocaine and cheating on her husband. So I guess I'm not sure why I'm surprised. But you should be ashamed of yourself for even speculating that. Lee Dixon was not perfect. He was himself an addict and was mixed up with the wrong people. That does not mean he deserved to die. He was a husband, a father, a son, and a human being who deserved justice. And his wife, Karen Dixon, was an innocent. She was not implicated in any of this and was indeed a beloved wife, mother, sister, and teacher who certainly didn't deserve to be terrorized and brutally murdered. She also deserves justice. Dennis Flowers was far from perfect. He arguably was a bad guy, a drug dealer, a pimp. But from all accounts of those that knew and loved him, 
He was trying to turn his life around, and he had a wife and children who adored him, and he also was a human being who deserved justice. When we start deciding which victims deserve justice, where do we stop? This whole case stinks to high heaven, and at this point, there is little hope of it being reopened. Dennis's daughter Dana would be satisfied if her father's manner of death would be changed from suicide to undetermined. She would rather see it changed to murder and the case reopened, but she knows as well as anyone that too much time has passed. Everyone who is involved in this case is either dead or is never going to tell the truth. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original theme music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Special thanks to Dana Flowers and her team. I hope I have helped more than I've hurt in opening these old wounds. As always, if you enjoyed the show, tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on Spreaker, CastBox, Stitcher, and many other apps. If you're interested in supporting the show, come check out my Patreon page or my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com, where you can make a one-time donation just by hitting the donate button. I also have a merchandise store open at whatamaneuver.net. Just search for the show name and you'll find all kinds of fun options. If you have any comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email me at southernfriedtruecrime.com. I love hearing from you guys, and I'm always looking for new cases, so please feel free to reach out. I am also all over social media. Just search the show name in your favorite platform if you would like to connect with me there. If you're interested in discussing the Dixon and Flowers case or any other episodes further, come check out my discussion group. It is linked to my main Facebook page. I would love to hear your thoughts. I hope you will check out my friend Nikki's true crime podcast out of the great state of Arkansas called Strictly Homicide. I played a promo for that podcast before the show. And please stay tuned for a promo from a new show called Beyond Bizarre. I think you'll love it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care. This was a very memorable, shocking, and bizarre crime that happened. Seems almost too bizarre to be true. Charged in a bizarre, accused of dressing up as a clown. The bizarre twist in this story. The break they needed in this bizarre case. The damage that this man has caused so far. We've never seen anything like this. Welcome to Beyond Bizarre True Crime. These are the stories that'll make you wonder if they came from Hollywood or if Hollywood took it from them. Available on your favorite podcast app or online at Beyond Bizarre True Crime.